Bethany, there we are. Good morning. (laughs) Um, We are going to turn to Genesis chapter 39 this morning, so I'll give you a moment for that. All right, read along with me. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything except for the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, Because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home, and she told him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant, whom you have brought among us, came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me? His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks, Pam. Well, when we last checked in with Joseph, he had taken his God-given dreams, do you remember? A couple weeks ago, the dreams of his family bowing down to him and foolishly flaunted them in arrogance before his family. Do you remember he started out in our first week of the story of his life uh, as a lying, kind of arrogant young a boy, young man, actually. And his brothers three times filled with hatred, the text said in chapter 37. They planned to murder him and ended up eventually selling him into slavery. Crying out from the pit, do you remember? They callously ignored him. And the family blew up. Remember our image of of, of the volcano exploding with sin underneath the surface. The family blew up under the weight of their sin. But we also, do you remember, saw very clear Christ connections in the life of Joseph to Jesus, a man who was despised, rejected, stripped naked like Joseph, sold by his brothers for money too, Jesus. And guess what? Jesus, he too was thrown into a pit of sorts and was abandoned and left for dead like Joseph. And he too cried out from the pit like Joseph did to be delivered. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God did turn his back on his son, Jesus. For us in that moment, God was silent to his son. But here's the key to Joseph's life and yours as we continue now in this story. Joseph's life goes from the pit to the pinnacle and back again to the pit this week. And yet God is with him in all of it, every moment of it. You know, it's interesting. God is so present in the first half of Genesis in very clear, vocal ways, even speaking and, and showing up in places to his, his servants. But in the second half of Genesis, not so much. He seems to be more silent now in the life of Joseph, not showing up as, as clearly. But that doesn't mean he isn't working. That's not what that means. He was working in that moment of Christ's life when the father was silent and in chapter 39 today, through all the circumstantial ups and downs, or is it, was it the vicissitudes of life, the ups and downs of life, Joseph remains a man of integrity because of God's presence and because God is working. Through temptations to grasp a couple really um, influential things in our life, power and sex, he stays faithful. So what's his secret? What does he have? The answer is not sheer willpower to battle all these temptations. It's a new perspective of God's presence. So let's get that perspective this morning. Maybe for some of you, it will be a new perspective. Maybe for you, it's going to be a refresher. You need to hear this, this perspective on God's presence. Hopefully, you've got your outline there for a few fill-ins today. And scriptures open, we'll reference some of the verses in chapter 39. But let's look at this first truth in Joseph's life and yours as well. God is just as present at the pinnacle of Joseph's life, where we find him at the beginning of chapter 39, as he is in the pit of Joseph's life, because he's going to go back down there again. And it's the same for your life too, even when he seems silent. The story of Potiphar's wife's attempt at seducing Joseph in the middle of here is intentionally bookended. You know, bookends go on the side. It's intentionally bookended by two clear assertions that God is present with Joseph. And and this catapult to success in Potiphar's house and his success once he's thrown in prison. Did you catch, see the two bookends there? They're both due to God's presence. 
at the pinnacle and at the pit in prison. Now, Joseph doesn't even say the name of Yahweh in this story. No character actually does. Nobody says Yahweh. And yet it's clear, crystal clear, that even though he is silent, he's not missing an action here. God is not missing an action. In fact, he seems to be even more clearly working in his silence here. He's not impotent in both the pinnacle of, of Joseph's life and the pit. He's with Joseph on the entire roller coaster ride at every moment of it, when things seem to be going well and when his life seems to be blowing up. And why is that? It's God's character. He is the covenant God, the promise-keeping God, the God who, who, because of his character, must stay true to his word, and he's absolutely put himself on the line and bonded himself to this chosen family. It's his character. He will do it. And here in Joseph's life, Joseph hits the peak of success, and the text says, everything was put in his hand. We're going to use the language of hands and grasping today because throughout the story, there's the imagery of having something in your grasp, in your hand, and that image serves to communicate the power, the influence that Joseph had. When it says in the, the text, it was put in his charge, it basically means the same thing also when it says it was put in his hand. It's to communicate that power that Joseph had, that Potiphar's wife had as she grasps with her hand and Potiphar himself. So who was Joseph now in this moment at the pinnacle? Who was Joseph in the, uh, at this point in his life? He wasn't just a slave. She calls him that, but he wasn't just a slave. He had lots and lots of power, actually. He has become in this moment as we said, catapulted, this is quick, he's become the right-hand man of Potiphar, the captain of the guard. So what is that? It's possible that Potiphar was really overseeing all the armies, the entire uh, armed forces of Egypt. That's a pretty high position as captain of the guard. And Potiphar, this powerful man in Egypt, makes Joseph his overseer of all his house and all his fields, all he has, the text says, he puts him in charge. He places it in his grasp, in his hands. It's his to, to, to oversee. Can you imagine the temptation of an 18 or 19-year-old man being given the helm of a multi-million dollar uh, corporation? <laughs> That's kind of the picture we're getting here. Or, or, or a business I want us to be aware, and even some of our youth here today, we have some of our teenagers here today, Joseph is facing these temptations as, as a man 18 or 19, a few years older than just some of you. He's, God's puts him into a really interesting situation at this age. He's, he's come to the, 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 the hub, the wheel, the center of all the power of Egypt. God has placed this 18 or 19-year-old man into the middle of and given him much, much influence. He's not just a slave. So how does he use his power and his influence? I mean, I can think at 18 uh, what I would have been tempted to do with it. What does Joseph do with it? Is he tempted to use it for evil or selfish, self-centered gains? Well, the story tells us. 
Here's what he does. With much power in his grasp, Joseph keeps his hands open to bless, we see in the story. For sure the temptation's there. The story tells us all that was in his hands succeeded. What's that phrase, like the Midas touch? You know, the, the, the touch of everything touches turns to gold. That's kind of what was going on in Joseph's life. And Potiphar noticed this touch of gold that God had given Joseph. And so he becomes a conduit, Joseph does, for blessing to everything in Potiphar's house and field, the story says. So everything. Here's where we see Joseph. He begins to fulfill the prophecy made to his great-grandfather Abraham. Genesis 12, a couple of verses are popping up behind me there. These, these, pro- these promises made to his great-grandfather, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. There's the open hands. I will bless those who bless you. And even as we get to the end of the story, the two bookends, we see God was with him and blessed everything he did everywhere he went. So what, what do we see and learn from this? this? This young man placed in this position of power. I was listening to a pastor, uh, an old sermon uh, by a man named Dick Lucas that was quoted, and he had this incredible insight into this influence and power Joseph used to bless others. And I love what he said about it. It's a little bit longer quote, but I love it. I wanted us to read it because I absolutely agree with him entirely. He says this, if you were to go up to a book table, we have books, resources out at church. Imagine going up to our counter out there and see a biography entitled The Man or the Woman God Uses. You'd immediately think it was the story of a missionary, minister, or a specialist in some spiritual work like evangelism or leading Bible studies. He said, well, that's because the church has conditioned you to think this way. But in fact, what you have in Joseph at this point is essentially a highly successful businessman. He's not a preacher or a missionary, and he's not leading a Bible study, and yet God is mightily using him. He went on in the short and long term, I think that being a preacher or a missionary is in many ways, many ways easier. There's a certain spiritual glamour in doing it, but it's much harder to get Christians to see that God is willing to greatly use every man and woman in every sphere of life. That it, this is the great shortfall today. I think he's right. I absolutely agree with him. We've been so conditioned in church life over the years and decades to see ministry as, as what happens here or maybe by the paid professionals that we've missed out on this beautiful theology of work and opportunity we have to be used by God wherever we are. Think about it here. The, the first one that God begins to use to fulfill this promise to Abraham that the people will be blessed through you. He's not a pastor. He's not a prophet. He's not a missionary. What does he do? He works in the middle of a pagan government. Think about that reality. You know, in our recent disciple-making series, we talked about the disciple-making church. One of the convictions we talked about is, where do we make disciples? Where are we to do that? Where does that happen? Where do we help people? Remember, we define discipleship as one small step. 
Where do we help people take just, just one small step towards Christ? Well, the answer was everywhere we go. And the life of Joseph is a connection to us for that because Joseph is not the ideal candidate you would think. He's not a pastor, prophet, missionary. He's a business guy thrown in the middle of a pagan government everywhere we go. Here's what that really means. There's really no difference between secular employment and spiritual employment for the disciple. Everywhere we go, you're a disciple of Jesus. Every sphere you walk into, you're a disciple of Jesus. And if you think about it, where do we spend the majority of our time? Home and work. Home and work in the large, large swath of our life. And so how do we use our influence there is a question to ask. Are you known maybe as bitter or grumpy or a little short-fused at work? Or is there something different? Do they know you're a Christian, actually? That would be important. Even that's just a small step, knowing you're a Christian and seeing how you live day to day, even when you mess up at work or at home. It's in the apology, right? It's in the owning of our sin. It's in the asking of forgiveness. Once they know who you are, that they see something different. I think there is a temptation. There was here for Joseph, I'm sure, to use our own influence, our own power, our own positions to kind of serve ourselves. I have that temptation, I know. Whether it's a father's looming presence with his kids or a booming voice he uses to kind of, out of fear, manipulate behavior. Maybe to a mother-in-law controlling her daughter-in-law through shame. To employers maybe not paying employees fair wages. To laying blame at work on somebody in a lower position. To maxing out our spending to get as much stuff and leisure as we can and being unable to give back, using our power, our influence for ourselves. It's so easy to be kind of grabbed and pulled in and co-opted by the authority and the influence and the power or whether finances, whatever that may be that God gives us. It's so easy to get sucked into using it just for ourselves. And here Joseph has tons of power. He's going to get more actually in Egypt and it's open hands. He's blessing everyone around him. He's going to rise to heights of power in the coming weeks, and he's still going to use that power to bless the whole entire known world at that time. His organizational skills, his ingenuity, his wisdom is going to save the world from starvation. God is using him in all his power and influence to hold it loosely and for others, not to serve himself. So how does he do this? How can you do this? How can I do this? Here's what he understands, even as a teenager. He understands that his true power comes from God's presence. True power is God with us. That's power, God with us. Here's how Joseph models that. First, Joseph models Jesus' use of power in his first coming. Do you know that? Philippians 2 says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be. There's that language. Grasped, held tightly in his hand. But he emptied himself open-handed by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, becoming obedient 
to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had all things in his hand. The text tells us here, Philippians, all things in his hands. Everything was in his hand. And yet he comes to us as a suffering servant. He holds it loosely. Joseph is mirroring that pre-Jesus. He holds it loosely. Everything Joseph had of his success, everything in his hand, everything in your hand is due to God's presence in your life at the pinnacle and in the pit. Joseph shows us that, which means it's not actually ours to use as we see fit. It's all his. We're stewards is the word, the biblical word. And Joseph understood that, and Jesus understood that as the son of the father. It was all in his grasp. It was all his, and yet on the cross, open-handed, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them. I would have zapped them, (laughs) not Jesus. I would have fried them, called down a legion of angel army, not Jesus. He's got all things in his grasp, Philippians says, and yet he was willing to open his hands on a cross. Think of that. That's how you too and I too can hold our own influence, power, authority, however you want to describe it, that Jesus gives us by seeing him go forward and do it for us. It's the gospel working. And it was working in Jesus' life. It's working in our life. He didn't grasp. He served. And just to be sure, we have an even more incredible understanding and sense of God's presence than even Joseph could have. Jesus became one of us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's first for Joseph and his power. But second, he's still with us. Matthew 28, behold, I am with you. God with us, I'm with you always to the end of the age. So at the pinnacle, he's there with Joseph. And in the pit, God was quietly working in Joseph's life. And this same Jesus is present in his spirit, working in your life too, even if he seems silent because it's the same God that was working in the pinnacle and pit of Joseph's life, even in his silence. So there's our first temptation Joseph had, this, this dealing with power and this immense position of authority for an 18-year-old he was given. Let's look at the second one. We're going to look at, at three, basically, here. The temptation was there for Joseph to grasp the one thing, the one thing Forbidden to him. So at the pinnacle, he has a temptation. And on the way to the pit, there's one too. So not only as an 18 or 19-year-old does Joseph have the temptation to misuse his power, I think about the revenge he could have gotten. I mean, wouldn't that have been a temptation for Joseph with what his brothers did to him? Or promotion for himself? He also had the power to grasp and put in his hand the one thing that was forbidden to him. And what was that? His boss's wife. I mean, think of the hormone level of an 18-year-old. That's Joseph. He's not immune to that just because he's a Bible character. We know is the one thing forbidden to him because in his response to her in verse 9, he says, he hasn't kept anything back from me but you. Does that sound reminiscent of anybody? Maybe our first parents in the garden even? You may eat of 
all the trees in the garden. I'm putting it all in your hand, except the one. All of it's in your hand. Let's take a look at this temptation and the two different responses we're going to see, because they're vastly different in Joseph's response and Potiphar's wife. And we get actually to see even as Joseph comes up against the one thing. It is a test of sorts for Joseph, as it was in the garden for Adam and Eve. The one thing. We're going to get a different look at use of power with Potiphar's wife. What does she do with it? Potiphar's wife, she uses her influence, her power to grasp what she wants when she wants it. Now, the English, our ESV or whatever translation you're reading, does not get the full force of what happens here. That doesn't always happen. Language is complex, and we do our best in our own English to try to describe it. But verse 6 describes Joseph first as doubly attractive in form and appearance, and she lays eyes on him. Sounds like the garden too, doesn't it? She sees it, looks at it. They see it. They take it. They taste it. She lays eyes on him and says, come, come, come lie with me. But in the original Hebrew, it's actually just two words. You know what it basically is? It's sex now. That's all she says to him. That's what she says. The Bible does make us blush sometimes. It does. It's okay. It's real life. That's why. And gritty. It's real stories and real lives. Sex now is what she says. Totally dismissive of his personhood and exploiting his position as employed by her husband. And well, if Joseph is using his power around, to bless those around him, she's using it to get what she wants when she wants it. The power she has has overtaken, corrupted, given her these motives, and really destroying her from the inside out. Sex now. She's symbolic, really, of the, the world's view of power, taking it and getting what you want, using your might, your influence, whatever you can do to gain and get your piece of the pie, you probably heard the phrase uh, that Lord Acton is best known for, power tends to corrupt, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's a good phrase. And even in her humiliating rejection, which it probably was, she uses her power to get what she, want, she wants. Did you see in the story how the words she uses, she says as she grasps in her hand the garment of Joseph in verse 12, I'll just take what I want. So the temptation goes from a, a drip day to day, day to day, to just grabbing it with her hands, pulling it in. And in her language with the men of the household, did you see what she says there? See, he has brought this man here. So these are the other servants in the house. He has brought this Hebrew here to laugh at all of us. She's kind of expanding her language there. And then to her husband, did you catch that? Your servant, the slave you brought here, came to laugh at me. She's got some power and influence, and she's using it to get what she wants. It's it's an example of an abuse of power to serve herself only. A totally different response to the temptation of influence than Joseph. So how does Joseph respond to this temptation Here's what we see. Joseph resists temptation not through sheer willpower, but heart power, we're going to call it. It's not just willpower. She says two words. Joseph responds with like 35 words. (laughs) To to her two words, sex now. It's worth repeating. Look at verse 9 with me. 
He says, uh, he's talking about his master of his house. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He says, no, 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 this, this is a wicked thing. He says it twice. This is a wicked thing. It is sin. Why is it wrong? You, you know, we can grow up in church life and grow up, we talk about sex, and we say, well, sex outside of marriage is wrong. And some of us maybe grew up in the church with hearing that, sex outside of marriage is wrong, and maybe you hear that now, sex outside of marriage is wrong, but why? Why is that? Was that ever explained to us? Maybe some of us it was, but maybe not all of us. Maybe you're a teenager here today and your parents have just said, hey, you know, just, just don't, just don't. But why? Why is that? Why is sex outside of marriage wrong? Is God just a, a cosmic killjoy? That's not it. But Joseph is really clear. He's saying here, no, this is a wrong thing. I, I, I can't do this. God is not a cosmic killjoy. That's not the reason. There's a place in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul looks at sex and looks at it in light of the gospel, in light of who Jesus is, in light of what he has done, and talks about sex outside of marriage like this. Take a look at these verses. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. He's quoting Genesis there. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He just goes, flee. Flee from sexual immorality. What Paul is saying as he talks about this text and what Paul is saying as he refers to, to, to Genesis, he's saying that sex is designed to create one flesh. Well, what is that? That's kind of weird and just a weird phrase. Who uses that? One flesh. What is it? Sex was God's design. So he's not a cosmic killjoy, Right? He created it, he designed it, and he made it so that it would be the act, the thing, the act that would symbolize giving ourselves entirely to another person. He made it for that. He gave it a powerful meaning, an actual function in what it does. It's a way of saying to another person, sex, is a way of saying to another person, I belong to you in everything. All my entirety, I belong to you, and the act of sex is what does that. That's why it's called consummating a marriage. It is what is officially saying, all mine is yours, all yours is mine. So what you're doing with your entire life, committing to this other person, economically, emotionally, psychologically, you now do with your body. That's what God designed sex to be. Even designed as they were to, to, to fit together a man and a woman's body. It's the expression then of what you're doing with your whole life is expressed then with the body. So, if that's true, to have sex outside of marriage is actually one of the most selfish things you can do. Let me tell you why. You can say it's an expression of love, and it, there might be real love in some of those cases. You can say it's an expression of, of lust or attraction, but without marriage, it's saying to the other person, I would like to join this part of my life to you, my body, 
but I really don't want to join all the rest. That's what it is outside of marriage. I'd like to give you this one piece of me, but I want to keep all the rest under my control. I don't want to give you part of control of my finances, my will, my life, my emotions, my psychology, my thoughts. I'll trust you with my body, but nothing else. Do you see why God might put some boundaries on something like that? And God knows that when we do have sex outside of marriage, we kind of warp, manipulate, tear down our ability to kind of do that full life commitment inside of marriage. That's why I used to talk with college students and I would say, do you know why you're so emotionally wrecked over this breakup? It's because you've had sex and now it feels like a divorce. You have tied your life to this person with the thing that God meant to say, all of mine is yours and yet you have no security of marriage. Somebody can break up with you tomorrow and it will feel like a divorce. That's why God says it. He's protecting us. That's why Paul says, flee, flee. That's why Joseph says, no, 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 it's wicked. But how does he resist the temptation? He's 18, remember, he's 19. A lot of us know things are wrong and we still go through with them, don't we? So how do we resist the temptation? It's more than just flee. Here's how. He resists temptation not through sheer willpower, but we're calling it heart power. Heart power. The world we live in knows one way to resist temptation. Just one, really. It's sheer willpower and willpower alone. Think about any diet you've been on. Think about a battle with pornography. Think about your anger that explodes from time to time. The temptation comes and we think, okay, push it down willpower. Push it down. Suppress it. Deny it. Tighten down that vice grip upon your heart and the temptation and try, 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 try really, really hard. That's willpower. Now, you can get some success for a little while with willpower. For a little while. You can kind of work yourself up into that. But what happens after a while? You wear down. You get exhausted. You grab the ice cream, right? <laughs> or you slip away with your phone. You explode in anger at your spouse. But what does Joseph say here? He says it's wicked and it's sin, but he says a little phrase against God. It's against God. It's, re it's reminiscent of someone else's words when he fell into great sexual sin and actually committed, didn't he, David? Psalm 51 I've sinned after he murders Uriah and he takes his wife. But he says, against you, God, against you only have I sinned. Now, did David know he sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba? Yes. But in his heart, the thing that was going to actually make him repentant and change was the realization of his sin against God. So Joseph doesn't look at his temptation and just go, suppress, suppress it, push it down. A battle of the will. Of course it is a battle of the will. But he looks outside of himself. He doesn't just look at his own desires and push down, push down. He looks outside of himself and his heart to his love for God. And he says, how can I do this thing to the one I've truly given my heart and soul to? No, no, it's a sin against God. He looks outside of himself. 
I can't do this, Potiphar's wife. God, God has captured his heart. There's a place in 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about all the excruciating things he had been through as a missionary on his journeys. All the, 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 the horrific things he had gone through. Here's what he said. Do you remember this little passage? He said, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day on one of those shipwrecks, I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers and dangers from robbers and danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Wouldn't you quit? <laughs> Wouldn't you? I mean, I, I think after the second shipwreck, I would have been done let alone three. <laughs> what is it that sustains him? Does he just have more willpower than you and I? Uh, willpower? Is he just a masochist and loves this, to go through torture? No. I mean, I'm sure Paul loved a good night's sleep, don't you think? In a warm bed. I'm sure he loved a good meal, and yet he's without food. I'm sure he loved the feeling of being safe. But he revealed that he loves something more than all those things in the next chapter. Look at what he says in chapter 12. For the sake of Christ. For the sake of Christ, he says, that I'm content with the weaknesses, the insults, the hardships, the persecution, the calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. Of course he had the temptations, but it wasn't willpower to quit to keep him from quitting and giving up, it was for the sake of Christ that he did it. Do you see a parallel between Joseph's words? I can't sleep with you, God. God. He had a greater love, Paul did now, for Christ than for all those other loves of a warm bed, a good meal, a safe night of sleep. And his greater love, his greater passion for Christ put all those other good loves even of a good meal and a good night of sleep, it put all those in their proper place though. They weren't ultimate. His loves of food and sleep and safety. Joseph was an 18-year-old man. Of course he felt the temptation. He wasn't passionless. The passion was there. He just had a greater passion for God in that moment. He just loved God more in that moment than his own sexual desire. Heart power, not willpower. Self-control in situations of temptation, is not your, your will pushing down the loves of your heart. Do you know what it is? It's a greater love, a supreme love, a more important love, mastering those others. That's what changes. That's what transformation is. Joseph says, I can't sleep with you, because in his mind he's thinking, how can I trample on God? So there's an idea from a classic sermon that's had probably the most important impact on my own life. The, those classic sermons, they were, they were just too wordy. His title was The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Figure that out. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. But I think one of the quotes from his sermon, I mean, I read his sermon, I'm like, it's just so practical and relevant today, even if it's in some more difficult language. But this is a relatively kind of simple quote. I think it gets at it. He says this. His name's Thomas Chalmers. He said, 
we know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. What's he saying there? He's not saying, of course I love other things. I love a good meal. Joseph probably was tempted and had this desire and love towards sex. Paul wanted safety probably and a good meal and a good night's sleep and didn't want to get on his fourth shipwreck, even I think he did four. There's one after those three that he wrote about. All of those things, okay things to love in their proper place. This is, this is gospel-centered change we're getting at here that Chalmers is getting here from 300 years ago and Paul was getting at in uh, 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. And it's what Joseph is at the root of his heart. I can't sleep with you, God. It's not just willpower. It was his heart. Heart power. What, what Chalmers means is, you know, we have those loves of things in the world you have to replace them with a greater love and expelling power of another love. There's always some love sitting on the throne of your heart. Do you know that? It, it can't be any other way. We're made in the image of God and being made in the image of God means we will always worship something. There's always gonna be a love sitting on the throne of your heart. The expelling power is the idea that a love for God will take something off the throne of your heart that shouldn't be on the throne and put the love of God on that throne. It's heart power, not willpower. This is Paul in Philippians 3. He's saying, I grasp onto Christ because he's grasped onto me. It's to see Christ as more beautiful than the temptation that will well up inside your heart. Of course it's going to happen again, maybe today. When you see that you are in his hand, as Paul said in Philippians 3, that he's got a hold on you, much firmer grip than Potiphar's wife had on his coat, when you're firmly in his grasp of his love for you, then you begin to have an open hand with temptation too. Not just power, but with temptation. And it'll slip through your fingers like sand at the beach. Chalmers said in that quote, the only way to do it is by pursuing that, that, that most holy faith. And Joseph, what does he do? He flees the scene. So he does what is right, but he still ends up in jail. That doesn't seem fair, does it? He still ends up in the slammer, where I think he even faces his greatest temptation, more even than power or sex. Let's look at that one to wrap today. The third one is this. Joseph's greater, greater temptation, I think, would be to grasp at despair and bitterness. Despair and bitterness. Think about it. In chapter 37, when he was in the pit, remember that? He must have had some thoughts of, you know what? I kind of deserved this one. I lied about my brothers to my father, and I, I could have toned down the dr dream. I guess I didn't have to stand on the kitchen table when I said it. I kind of deserve this one. But here in chapter 39, he's done everything right, and his life still blows up in his face. He's been benevolent with his influence and his power in Potiphar's house. He's passed the test. The one thing he couldn't touch he passed the test, and look where he ends up, in prison. And Psalm 105 lets us know, it was no picnic if we think, oh, it's just the king's prison. He was, you know, probably fed well, and not what Psalm 105 says. I think I got a wrong reference there. It's 105. There's no Psalm 195. 
I made this psalm up, just, you know. <laughs> it's Psalm 105. He says this, though. It's talking about Joseph here. His feet were, were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. So no picnic for Joseph. How would you be feeling in that moment? You've done everything right, and now you're in chains for it. Wouldn't you be tempted to grasp despair and bitterness? God, I have served you. I've obeyed you. I've given things up for you, and this is how you repay me? But what kind of hard attitude is that revealing? Were you serving God entitled? Yeah, I heard that. Were you serving God to get the things of God in that moment or just God himself? I mean, isn't this kind of the way the life works, though? Sometimes, even when you do everything right, life will still blow up in your face. Sometimes things, even when you do them right, life still blows up. But you might say, yeah, I've been so faithful and obedient. You're right, and God has let horrible things into my life. He's let horrible things happen to me. I've been so faithful and obedient. What do you say to that, Pastor Jeff? How do you, you answer that? I mean, one thing I would say is, well, look to the life of Joseph. Look at the life of Joseph. What happens? If he doesn't go to prison, he doesn't meet the king's prisoners. If he doesn't meet the king's prisoners, he doesn't end up as second in command in Egypt. If he doesn't end up second in command in Egypt, thousands die, including the father and mother of Jesus. See, we have a perspective on Joseph's life he could never have. We have his story. We have his book. We have his life. Yeah, okay. But you can't give me that perspective on my life, Jeff, so why should I trust you? You can't give me that. Why should I believe you? Can you grasp perspective on your own life of Jesus with us. The story was bookended. Did you see it? God was with him in the pinnacle. God was with him in the pit. Can you grasp that? Jesus with us. Look at the table here. This table is the, a picture of the ultimate Joseph. Jesus, think about him, who lived a life of integrity and honor and obedience, if there ever was one. And when he resisted temptation, what happened in his life? It blew up, didn't it? It absolutely blew up. We're going to sing in a moment. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. That's a blow up. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned, bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns, sent of heaven, God's own Son, to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones who nailed him to the tree. Totally obedient, total integrity from start to finish of his life, and it blows up in his face. I can't tell you your story. I can't give you a Joseph perspective on it. I can't tell you, you're right, why God has allowed your life to blow up when you have obeyed. But I can tell you Joseph's story, and we can see and taste Christ's story together today, can't we? That's got to give us some hope. And if he was willing to go to that great length to grasp you and get you in his hands, 
that maybe we too, like Joseph, can live as men and women of integrity with open hands, whether it be in the palace or in the home or in the prison. That's integrity, being the same in all the different spheres of your life. We come to the table now to do that, to see the story, to taste the story, to know again that because his life blew up when he was perfectly obedient, you may not have the answers, but we do know the end. He resurrected from the grave. And so that will be the end of your story too. So I want you as our servers come and prepare and our band comes up. 